This is Larry Fessenden from Glass Eye Picks, and you're listening to Without Your Head. Welcome to the station of decapitation without your head. I'm Nasty Neal. I'm Treacherous Trista. Yes, and we're joined by Justin McConnell here, who's uh, going to talk about his new documentary, Clapboard Jungle. I'm just Justin. Anyway, <laughs> just Justin. I like that. Yeah. yeah. Uh, how you doing? Uh, good. Nice Very good. Yeah. Then August 20th through the September 2nd, Fantasia Film Festival, Clapboard Jungle. Will be there, mm-hmm. uh, and just a, a a ton of content at Fantasia. Yeah, there's a, definitely a lot of things screening there. Um, there always is every year. Uh, I, I almost feel like the virtual one opened it up even more. It feels like the program's bigger, but uh, I'm probably wrong about that. <laughs> yeah. So you've been to Fantasia pre, you know, previous years? Uh, I've been going there every year for two to three weeks since about 2013. So oh, wow. It's like my, um, my horror kid summer camp, I guess, or my genre kid summer camp. Although I'm kind of there to work too, I scout acquisitions for a couple of distributors, and I, I program for Toronto After Dark, so I'm looking for films while I'm there. But uh, and there's the Frontiers Market, which you know I participate in, so I'm there for business. But uh, I still treat it as a vacation because Montreal's awesome, and that festival makes it that much better. Yeah, I'm friends with uh, George Mihalka, who uh, oh, yeah. does a lot yeah, there, and he's great. always been trying to get me to, to go. Which uh, unfortunately, I haven't been. And this <laughs> year, you know, it's not. Uh, it's virtual this year. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and George has been in Hungary for, I don't know, a year and a half now. He's, he's the showrunner on a really big TV series there. So he's, uh, he wouldn't have been there this year anyway. He's, he's already flown back like a week ago or something like that. So yeah, I don't know. He, the way he describes it is like, I don't know, Hungarian Game of Thrones or something like that. Oh, really? That yeah. sounds very interesting. I don't know about this. I think he might've mentioned the last time he was on, like he, cause it was probably before the last, uh, last Fantasia. Yeah, so it would have been that, that or it would have been um, him and I are trying to get a book series uh, to television, but we'll we'll see. I can't talk about that beyond that, but we'll, we'll see. All right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So Clapboard Jungle, like, when did you start to, like, make this? Because, uh, you know, it seems like uh, there's it had to have taken a long time to get all the Yeah, I started shooting in early 2014. So um, I just, like, four or five months before I started shooting, my last documentary, Skull World, had come out. Uh, through various distributors and I was trying to figure out what I could do next because I didn't really have any money and I was trying to get some other movies made that were going to take some time and I was like well I still want to produce something and what can I do and just like my past two docs before this uh, when it comes to documentaries I generally just start and pay out of my own pocket and build them gradually um, instead of looking for any kind of finance up front for something like this because it's something that I could have sort of shot as a hobby, uh, especially because I, I decided, you know, I'm going to collect interviews gradually and then turn the camera on myself. It would, it would be very hard to finance that. So, so I, uh, so I just sort of did it. I started in 2014 and I shot for 
I mean, technically, uh, I'm still kind of shooting because we still have the TV series, so I'm still collecting interviews, um, or I will be once you know we're able to again because mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. I don't want to do I don't want to do the Zoom thing; it, it'll stand out too much. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, it's been it's been almost six years uh, that, since we started working on this. Um, when you started it, like, did you know, like, how much of an idea did you know, like, what what you're going to cover when you start started? Because I assume something like this would change, like, over time. Yeah, like, I mean, like, it, it, it it definitely grew organically over time. Uh, I I set up with a general idea to make a film school in a box, uh, and I didn't know what shape shape that would take or what kind of a story arc there'd be because I hadn't lived it yet. So I would have needed like a crystal ball or um, time travel or something to try and figure out where the story was actually going to go. Cause I couldn't predict my own future for all I knew back in 2014, the first movie I was trying to get made at that point tripped would have been the one that I got made and it would have gone faster, but it was a whole other path at least on the story side of things. But with the interviews, I knew I just wanted to collect as many interviews as I possibly could and package them together in a way that would be entertaining, but also deliver uh, a bunch of information. Um, And it grew. I mean, initially it was going to be a feature film and then a bunch of extended web content um, and like a masterclass edition Blu-ray. And then uh, that kind of, you know, not masterclasses in the trademark. So don't, (laughs) but anyway, (laughs) um, but that sort of thing. But then once I realized, once we were, deeper into it and I had like 350 hours of raw footage and 120 interviews it was very much like okay the feature film is a standalone and it's the more emotional arc and then the series the eight episode series is uh, an educational every episode is based on a topic it's it's mostly talking heads there's a bit of narration for me but it's not my story at all and they're two separate things under the same project and then extended content so it was just we had so much to work for, with and there's so much stuff that still hasn't been shown to the public that it's, it, it just it expanded it became bigger than I anticipated it would be which is good and bad because you've got to edit it all together and that's a pain in the ass <laughs> you mentioned the story arc um, yeah. I like the beginning of the movie reminds me of a friend, uh, Michael Epstein, who's always, I started doing some movie stuff with him and mm-hmm. he told me, he always tells me making movies is a terrible idea. Don't do it. Yeah. And then like, I think the, the, your movie is kind of, is kind of like that kind of weed. It's kind of like a warning, like, okay, if you know right away, this is probably either, it's not going to make you rich. It's going to be lots mm-hmm. of bad experiences, but by the end, it's also fulfilling. But if, if you get by the beginning, then you know, like, okay, maybe this is for you. But yeah, if, if the idea of this is this is not necessarily going to work out, if that's bad to you, then it's probably not for you. Yeah, I think a lot of it is, um, and I, even coming up, I constantly had people saying this is like, if if you, this is not, if you if you can do anything else in this business, the advice I would get would be would be like, or anything else at all in your life, do it because this is a crushing, very difficult business to be in. And I mean, I think with perspective uh, outside of that, you can go, okay, sure. But, you know, you're not getting your arm blown off in a desert somewhere. You're, you're not right, right. dealing with Ebola patients. Yeah. You're not, you know, there, there are significantly harder jobs than this. Right, right. Yeah. But uh, it is um, on an emotional level and a uh, just a, a soulful level. It's kind of a difficult job because you're taking a piece of yourself, whatever you've created whatever story you've come up with, whatever creative idea you want to bring to the public and you're trying to get it to screen initially. And that could take a long, long time or it may never happen. So you can put your heart and soul into something and then it just never pan out. And then when it actually gets made or you're making it, it may not turn out the way you wanted it to, or it may turn out the way you wanted it to, but then the public in general looks at it and goes, well, that was terrible. And then the public tells you that you've wasted years of your life or, or it could go the other way. It could be like a really 
big thing. Um, like a, a thing that really puts you on the, like it, it, you're just gambling. It's, it's, it, all the talent in the world does not guarantee you a, a career in this business. And, uh, and you know, you can't really speak for yourself as to what position you have coming in because it's different for everybody depending on timing and, and uh, luck and, you know, who you're connected to initially and just people taking a chance on you. It's, it's, it is a very difficult business. And yeah, I would say that if film isn't your heart and soul and if it's not a thing that you want to do with the rest of your life and you've got any other kind of pursuit, I wouldn't really think filmmaking would be for you. But if you've heard that and you're like, fuck that, I'm doing it anyway, you've <laughs> right. already answered your own question because you are going to push through no matter what. And that's the kind of person who lasts in the film industry. Mm-hmm. And uh, I like the, uh, the business versus art aspect of the, uh, of the documentary. Cause I don't think that's something a lot of people think about, you know, if you're getting into, but it's something you have to think about uh, if you want to actually have something made and get out there. Well, I think a lot of it is, um, you can make whatever you want to. You can make a, a movie that is only for you ultimately and that, that nobody is going to see or that nobody's going to like. And that's, that's totally fine. If you want to make money back or if you've got other people's money on the line or if you, um, you, know, you just want to get that next rung up the ladder and, and prove to people that you can make something that commercially uh, could do business, you do have to think a little bit about the marketing before you start shooting and you do have to put some, some of the, your mindset toward who is the audience for this and how am I going to get to them? Cause if you don't, you know, it could be a great film, but if nobody actually wants to see it because it, it, for whatever reason, it's either ahead of its time or it's just so niche. Um, it's fine. If you make it, it's cool if you make it and it's great if it builds a cult, but not every movie does that. And so it, it, it is a gamble again. It, it's very much, you really should know who, who you're making the movie for. Um, and if it's for yourself, admit that to yourself and don't be super disappointed if it, uh, if it crashes and burns. Along those lines, would you, is Clapboard Jungle for a, a niche audience? Is it for like an audience that are into the film festivals and yeah. filmmakers themselves? Yeah, I think so. I mean, ultimately the movie is for, uh, I made it for people like myself or people getting into the industry. That, the kind of thing that I wish existed a decade before I started making this thing, the kind of thing that existed when I was younger in my career, so I could just have a bit of a guiding light. Um, initially, that's the first audience is obviously people interested in filmmaking as a career or filmmaking uh, in general, or just people who are interested in the nuts and bolts behind how these things actually get made. I think there is a broader audience to some extent because almost it could apply to almost any art. That's this film to some Which, degree. A lot of documentaries are like that. Yeah. Like you might not be a, a box or whatever it is, but yeah, you know, exactly. Life lesson. It's still it's still kind of a rocky arc, right? You know, you're right. you're uh, uh, yeah, Rocky's a nowhere, even though it's yeah. not a documentary, yeah. but you don't have to be a boxing fan to, to yeah, like rock. Exactly, exactly. So it's the same idea of perseverance and, and learning learning the actual world you're existing in and how how to navigate that world and all of that sort of thing. I think does apply to other artistic disciplines or whatever you want to do in life. But there is definitely a niche. I mean, and we're, we're finding that with sales too, right? We, we've found some pretty great sales partners, but it's still very much like, you even talk to educational distributors and the ones in the United States will say, yeah, nobody wants to buy filmmaking documentaries. And then the ones in Canada will go, we're always getting people wanting to buy filmmaking documentaries. So it's like different people have different needs and different answers. And um, But 
there definitely is an audience out there for this. And I know, and it also works with genre people to some extent too, because the film is full of genre talent and genre names and genre interviews and behind the scenes stuff with practical effects and, you know, all that sort of thing that definitely, I was very cognizant of making sure to hit enough of a broad point with the main film that anybody who's actually really interested in finding out more and goes to the series, um, that this is kind of like the gateway to that. I was really happy to see so many people I know pop up throughout. Yeah. Greg Lamberson, uh, Izzy mm-hmm. Lee, and uh, Jen Wexler, Larry Fessenden. Like, there's all these people I know through the through the festivals. Well, and that's how I, I ended up, you know, meeting a lot of these people or getting to know a lot of these people is, is just, I'd go to a festival, I'd have my gear with me, I'd figure out ahead of time who was going to be there, and then uh, I would make a list of the people I wanted to reach out to, and I would set up interviews while we were all in one space. And gradually over time, traveling the world, doing these fests with various projects or markets. With You know, I go to Con starting in 2015. I started going to the Mar- Marche du Film, the Con, the Con market every year. There would be people at that. Um, so it was just a gradual kind of thing of, yeah, that, you know, I, I, I got to know these people through my career. So it was like, absolutely, they have a voice that would, would contribute to this. Yeah. Um, there are people I wasn't able to get, obviously. I mean, I reached out to quite a few people, uh, definitely people I was trying to aim to get larger names on the gender balance side of things. And I, I don't think I was fully successful in like booking, uh, you know, larger female creators and larger POC creators and stuff like that, that I was really trying to get into the film. Um, whatever, for whatever reason, I couldn't get the schedule. Well, it's good to see a lot of people again. I know like GG saw yeah. Guerrero's in it. And- yeah, yeah, there definitely is, but I wanted more balance in it. It wasn't, I wasn't able to get like a 50, 50. It's more like a 70, 30 or something like that, but I tried. I tried very hard. Yeah. And I like that. Uh, I don't, not that they overstay their welcome, but no one, you know, is in it uh, a lot. Like you well, get to see so many different points of everybody, you know, I did 120 interviews, so it's yeah. a 98 minute movie. I, there's no room. There's actually right, right. A, probably 24, 25 interviews I did that aren't even in the, the main film that are going to be spread. Like I did uh, like Uwe Boll and uh, like, I have a bunch of people that aren't in the main oh, film nice. that are going to be actually a, a, a fan of his. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think as a person, Uwe Boll is, is yeah, a, exactly. As a and, person, and, and as a sales agent, he's actually kind of brilliant. And we were talking, I talked to him at AFM and it was about sales. It wasn't about his movies and it's, it's, he's a very good businessman. Mm-hmm. I, I, I would, I would definitely put him that, put it in that, like his, his restaurant does, does gangbuster business and yeah. And there are a few of his movies that I've made that I like quite a bit. So yeah. I like, like you said, more is more of a person that uh, yeah. is a character. I found him on the show and I've, I, it's uh He's very funny. Well, he doesn't take I just shit, like him. That's for sure. No, he doesn't. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, he won. He won to fight. I mean, maybe he did fight like online critics of his. He won well, to did. do no, boxing did, uh, matches. Yeah, and I was like, this guy's awesome. Yeah. Called uh, yeah. Raging Bull that we put out with IndyCan. Uh, uh-huh. Or no, the doc. There's two documentaries. There's Raging Bull, which is just about the fight, and then there's um, what was it called? The one we put out with IndyCan was called. Uh, fuck you all the Uwe Boll story or something like that <laughs> something like that anyway yeah. yeah just that to me that's amazing you want to actually fight his, his critics online I was like this guy really he fought one of our associate producers on Clapboard Jungle because Chris Alexander the former editor of uh, Fangoria is one of our associate producers he's one of the guys who got in the ring with Uwe oh really yes <laughs> that rules yeah yeah, yep. our critic online. Uh, I would like to see uh, Jason, uh, our headless critic, sometime fight you. <laughs> well, I mean, Bull is a boxer, though. Like he's trained. Yeah. So it's kind of. Yeah. <laughs> That's why I want to see it. No, yeah. no, I like Jason. But uh, Tristan, do you have a do you have a question? 
Um, it's not a question. I did want to mention, I thought that you, uh, I, I, I was thrilled that you really seemed to honestly capture your lows as well as your highs, point, uh, yeah. personally, because, um, you know, you learn more from the failures, I think. And so you would have done a disservice to the viewers. It would have been a less honest film. Yeah. So I, I really enjoyed that. Thank you. Um, I tried very, very actively from the start on this. I knew, and I start the movie kind of saying this too, um, you don't make a movie about yourself and you don't make a movie about filmmaking. And, and these are like unwritten rules, right? And especially turning the camera on myself and also being the director of the documentary is a problematic thing. And it, especially because if there's no oversight and you've got no outside voice sort of helping you along, um, it can become a vanity project. And I didn't want this to be, hey, look at how cool I am. I'm doing this. And it wasn't the movie I wanted to make. The movie I wanted to make was a very honest, very introspective, uh, something that dealt with things like uh, imposter syndrome and depression and, uh, and just like trying to measure up in a business where you're constantly being evaluated. You're not, you never get the answers. You never actually know what didn't make a project happen. Did you fuck up in your pitch or whatever else it happens to be? Um, I wanted it to be really honest, warts and all kind of things. So I brought on a co-producer, a friend of mine named Daryl Shaw, right at the beginning. And his job through production side of things was to try and make sure that it wasn't a self-serving thing and to make sure that the honest moments in the raw footage made it through and I, I didn't censor myself. I mean, there's definitely probably a couple moments where uh, I, I either missed it in the edit or whatever, where I was probably even at a lower point than in the film, if that's possible, where it might not have made it to camera. But I had Daryl on board, and then Kevin Burke came on board when we started editing. He's the director of 24 by 36, the movie about movie posters. He's our he's the editor on this, um, and we, we worked together on the edit. Uh, he did the first pass, and then I came in and sort of, you know, tightened it and changed things around. And, and anyway, he also uh, I told him right from the beginning that we, we got to be honest about this. This isn't uh, this isn't fluffy. This is this is all about um, just being honest about the process and a lot of that. And I guess who I am as a person and I do have things like imposter syndrome and I do get depressed and uh, I do get crushingly disappointed after something doesn't happen that I put a lot of effort into. I mean, all these things happen to everyone, I think internally, externally. And I'm wanting to make sure that was, that was there, that it was important. It was important to show all everything, all the little pieces that go into a person when they're trying to survive this business and, and life in general, I guess. I mean, yeah, that's, I mean, that's something I really relate to is the imposter syndrome, as you mentioned, uh, throughout, uh, you know, we started the show, uh, it was before podcasts. So, you know, the other things out there were actual radio shows that were online and like the, a lot of them didn't like me because, uh, you know, I don't have a broadcasting degree. So it's like, well, do I even, why am I doing this? Do I belong yeah. here? And then, uh, you know, the last couple of years I've been doing stuff movie wise and still to, I feel even weird saying that cause like, I, I'm not an actor. Why am I in this movie or why am I producing this movie? Like I don't belong here. So it's very relatable. to me. I think that William Goldman quotes are actually very, very true. And it is kind of a comfort blanket that a lot of filmmakers should have is nobody knows anything. And anybody who thinks they do, I'm paraphrasing, but the basic idea that nobody really knows what's going to work in the business. And as, but as long as you educate yourself to the point where you are always learning and never thinking, you know, everything and always willing to um, learn what you did wrong, you can make really good educated guesses as to what might work. And then maybe something actually does. 
which means that if you're coming up and you aren't, you aren't plugged in, uh, you don't have the connections, you, you know, you, you are still learning how to make movies that don't suck, whatever it happens to be, you're, you're, you're failing upward or you're trial and erroring or however you're getting there. Um, all of that is fine because you have to take those steps. And the fact of the matter is that everybody who you look up to took the same steps as you. Some of them got there a lot faster for whatever reason, you know, some of them got really lucky. That's fine, but you have to fail before you can succeed. And everybody has failed to some degree. And it's, it's, and ultimately end of the, at the end of the day, somebody might say, this is how you do it. They're not right. They just did it that way in the past and worked for them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Cause even in the movie, people have different, like, uh, yeah. There's people talking about, you know, you, I need to finance your movie. Then um, I forget his name. Uh, he's from Astron 6. He was just like, oh, yeah. get a job and save your own money and make your own thing. So it's, yep. it's interesting. Steve. Everyone has their own. Yeah, Steve, yeah. But even at that point, when I shot that interview with Steve, it probably was 2014 or 2015. It was just before he made The Void, right? right. And, okay, and yeah. since then, he's he's done, you know, The Void, Leprechaun Returns. Uh, right. and now he's got which Psycho obviously Orman were movies that he made, you know. Yeah, he, which he made with other people yeah. by that point. Right. But, you know, that was, you know, Manborg was just coming out around then. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and he, he Astron 6's entire history is just do it. They just do it. But that's how we got to that position, right? So, you know, you're not going to get these opportunities. Um, every once in a while, somebody does. The smallest, smallest percentage of people get lucky and they get handed something big, which who knows how that happens. A million different ways that could happen. But for most people, they've got a body of work behind them that they've, created through grit grit and sweat and just making it happen mm-hmm. i thought the larry fessenden uh segment was really poignant to me because he was just like um a shoemaker makes shoes and a filmmaker dreams of making the shoes and I was yeah like, exactly you uh it, again it's the same thing it's like you can just make a pair of shoes or, or an artist can just paint a painting a filmmaker has to put an entire puzzle of financing and team and everything together first make sure the whole puzzle is pretty much together and then they get to start making the shoes or, and then they get to start making the, the painting. But if any one of those puzzle pieces falls apart, the entire puzzle might fall apart. Mm-hmm. So, and that could happen at any point that could happen on set. That could happen two days before the film finishes. Um, you could have a, a, a good example. I, don't, I can't, I can't be specific as to who this is and what movie this is, but there's a certain cult genre director. He's made other movies with big actors that weren't genre um, that made a movie that was a follow-up to his breakthrough film with, uh, with Canon films. I'll go that far. And uh, what had happened was this, this movie was one of the last movies that Canon films made before they fell apart. And half of the Canon's catalog went to Warner Brothers and half of it went to MGM. His went to Warner Brothers and then got shoved in a vault. And it still hasn't made it to DVD. It still hasn't made it to Blu-ray. And this is a director with cachet who has a pristine print in his house and can't because it's stuck in the Warner vault can't get the movie released. And that's, and I've, I've actually been trying to get this movie re-released for probably a decade now through multiple different distribution companies. And it's just like untying those rights and trying to convince Warner, you know, please let us release. This is just, and that's a movie that was finished. It made it to VHS through Canon's VHS arm, whatever, whichever, I don't remember who that was. So there's a, it, it's out there. You could probably watch it on YouTube right now but as a VHS rip, but it, it's never been restored. It's got known actors in it. It's a well-made, awesome, gory horror movie. And uh, no, it's just, it's sitting in a vault somewhere. So it doesn't matter what stage of the process you're in uh, with film, anything could happen and you could get, you could just lose all the work to some degree. 
Uh, something I always think about is, um, I don't know if this is true or not, but it, it is in my head, is that someone who is uh, a, an artistic person, I think a business is like the antithesis of that in some degree. So I don't think, I think it's hard to be good at both or be interested in both. It's, it's difficult. Um, but I think more and more as we become our own brands, because we are, I mean, that's kind of what it is on social media. You know, the face you put out to the world is not your real, that's not who I am technically who the world sees. It's a filtered version of myself. And in the same way that we're all our own brands right now, you kind of have to be business minded when you're making your art as well. You can, you can just create, you can be just a creator, just somebody who writes stories, just writes scripts. You can, you can get rid of all the noise of the business, but for the majority of people that don't put a business hat on, that means their career doesn't go anywhere anymore. There was a point where you could just be a creative. Now it's very few and far between that someone who's just a creative is able to break through unless they get really lucky or their script gets seen by the right people. Like I'm sure there are people who go through all these script contests and go through the blacklist and all of this stuff who get, you know, their, their story is strong enough and good enough that it gets a sale. And it's all they ever have to do is write scripts for like those people exist, but there's such an infinitesimal percentage of the people making movies that it's very much like you can't rely on the 0.00001% of success to dictate the, the path you take you, because you're the chances are just so low. So you better aim, arm yourself with a knowledge of how to, how to market yourself and how to sell yourself as a brand, whatever that brand is, you know, or, or just being an honest person and putting out honest work and just talking to the public about it, doing what I'm doing right now, sitting on a podcast, you know, I've done, I did another one two days ago, doing all this press, whatever it is <clears throat> to just try and get your message out there because no, especially in the world of social media, especially when things are as oversaturated as there are and ever, even Netflix hits, they're only hit for about a week and then the next Netflix hit comes along. So they're, yeah, they're forgotten. Really have, they're have really forgotten. Like, like uh, yeah, exactly. I don't know if they're movies that will stay still talking about bird box, you know, yeah, I, exactly. I'm not saying, you know, whatever, but that's the cycle we're in right and now. And that was huge at the time, like for yeah. two weeks, like that's all everyone was talking about. And now Which like, means, yeah, which means that the film is great and it does speak for itself and it will have fans and people will remember it. But the, what keep, keeps people coming back to your films is the personality you put out there and the way that you uh, you run your business. And your business is you when you're a filmmaker, when you're an artist. It's you know, it's you and your team. It's what you create. That's the business. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the oversaturation, you know, part and like it's it's easier now. I think in a lot of ways to make a movie just because you could do it digitally and thing, but it's I mean, much harder to get people to notice it, you know, just because there's so much out there. Yeah. Oh yeah. That's, I, I mean, there's definitely lots of movies that break through. Um, and even within the time of COVID, you know, there's movies like the wretched or Becky that lucked into, it's not luck. They're, they're solid movies, but right, they ended right. up with distributors that were able to get really exclusive, pretty widespread drive-in theater uh, engagements, which, Nobody else, that's the one movie watching option that was available in the United States. So they did killer box office because of that particular scenario. But again, it's an exception. It's not the rule. So it's very, it's very tough. Like I could make a movie with this, you know, I could put in X amount of dollars, not very much and finish it to the point where it's able to be released worldwide. But will anybody watch it? That's the other side of it is just getting people to watch it. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, there's a, there's a great uh, a great doc documentary 
filmmaker and author named John Reese, who made a movie called uh, Think Outside the Box Office, or movie, sorry, a book called Think Outside the Box Office, which is a really good breakdown of how he's been successful in planning his budgets on his films because he puts a big percentage of the actual budget into the marketing of the movie and make sure it's, it's, it's part of the budget. So it, when it comes time to release it, he's not relying on the, the audience to notice it. He's able to make, target and make sure that the audience has it in front of them and they know it's there because he planned ahead. And I think that's a really smart way to be as an independent filmmaker right now. Mm-hmm. And uh, something or two about them. I noticed it's like, you know, I'm watching this and I, you know, I've been in the festival scene for a while and then it's like, it's coming out right now where this world like isn't happening at the moment. Yeah. So it's a, it's kind of a peculiar time for this movie to be released. It's a little weird. Um, <laughs> like, so <laughs> you finish a movie and then a pandemic hits and then you end up with this movie that, and you got to decide, am I going to take the risk of going as one of the first films to do a virtual festival? And I've got financial partners on this um, that came in during post-production and a U.S. sales rep. And in discussions early on in, in, in this before, like we knew we were, we knew we were playing Fantasia probably in January or February this year, like way back. And we heard, we heard about Fright Fest back then too. Um, and Chattanooga we heard about. And with um, Chattanooga, the team as a group painfully made the decision that we had to pull out of the festival because of the virtual side of things. I regret that decision at this point because the festival went off without a hitch, mm-hmm. but it was more because they were back in April. I think, I think right. they were in April. Can't remember. At that time, you think, well, maybe it's just going to be this month, and then yeah. you know, the rest well, of that. I mean, I, I had a feeling it was going to go. For, I, <laughs> that's a whole other conversation talking mm-hmm. about sort of like my view on COVID and how early I saw this as an issue and why I think it's going to go for quite a while and all that sort of thing. It was more just we hadn't closed a bunch of deals yet, and the U.S. distributors at that point were very hesitant to pick up anything that had played a digital festival, especially with an audience as big as as that festival had because it's very much like a release. It's like a digital VOD release nationally to the entire United States. And who knows how much of your audience you've just burned doing that. So we, we opted out of that festival, which I do regret at this point. I think, I think what they pulled off was, was awesome. Uh, we said yes to Fantasia because they limited their tickets sold. So, you know, they're only selling 1200 tickets max for the, for the movie. It's the size of a big auditorium, which is great because if it was the entire country be, a, it'd be an issue but we also played the entire country already too uh on broadcast television through super channel with the canadian film fest in early june so it was like but that came with a broadcast license deal so we ended up with a, enough a significant chunk of money out of that which is good um it really is a festival by festival thing i mean we're playing fright fest it's the same sort of ideal it's, it's all virtual night visions is in theaters so you don't even have to think about it but it's like there are definitely certain festivals that we either had to turn down or have just, we're just hesitant to play because the, the upside isn't there. You know, you don't get to travel to it. You don't get to network with people. You don't get to meet people. Um, you know, it's no longer sort of a personal event. It's, uh, it is so surreal to sit into my apartment alone and have a movie I've just spent five years working on premiere nationally across Canada, and you get the odd text message or a call going like, hey, that was great, or, well, congratulations, but you're not in a room with people and you're not going to an after party afterwards. And it's not really a premiere. It's very much like I'm sitting in my boxers with a scotch going like, yay. You know, it's not quite the same. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's a big part of me going to the festivals is the, uh, 
interacting with everybody. Yeah. Fellow, you know, people who just like the movies, that's fun. And then the after parties and talking mm-hmm. to the film. Well, I think that face-to-face is very much an important part of what festivals bring you, right? You, it's hard to make friends over Zoom. It's hard to, you know, it, 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 this all feels like artifice to some degree. But if you're in a room with somebody and you're able to, you know, sing karaoke or drink, drink some beer or whatever it happens to be, you know, all the other stuff on the fringes of the festival that bring people together are what makes those festivals worth it because that network could last either as friends over the years, or you never know, you might be making a movie with them sometime down the line. That's how I, you know, got involved in, in a little bit of movie making I've done is uh, the people I met at the, the so the networking part is gone. I I did frontiers and um, the virtual version of both virtual versions of uh, the Marche de Film this year as well. And it was just like, it's not the same. I mean, they put in great work and the opportunities are still there, but it's not really the same to be on a Zoom meeting with somebody you've never met. And then you try and convince somebody halfway around the world through Zoom that like, you should invest in this project. I have no idea when we're shooting. I don't know what kind of safety protocols we can do. I don't know when the virus is over yet. So yes, please put money in. It's it's really tough. It's, It's definitely a weird time. Um, will I, do I think it's going to go back to the way it was? No, but I think that the lessons you learn in the way it was will apply to whatever the new version of the future is. Mm-hmm. Uh, something you said just a little bit ago about, um, you know, they've limited the, the ticket sales for Fantasia yeah. and then other places. It's kind of like it's opening worldwide. Yeah. Well, that hurt other festivals that go on after, uh, because can. like yeah. if, a, if a festival has this movie and it's, everyone can get it, um, it used to be like you'd have to, okay, I'm going to go to Chattanooga. I'm going to go to Buffalo. I'm going to go to Texas. I could see that being a problem because especially if it's a national thing, it takes away the regionality of film festivals, right? right. Fantasia is now all the way across Canada. Uh, you know, Chattanooga was all the way across the United States. Uh, Fright Fest is all the way across the UK and Ireland. <laughs> and it's like, okay, well, after Fright Fest happens, there's Cellulite Screams, Horathon, uh, Grim Fest, uh, fuck, I don't know. Um, Fractured Visions. Anyway, there's this long list of genre festivals after Fright Fest, plus a second edition of Fright Fest in October, where they now have to make the decision if they're going virtual, do I play this film that already played Fright Fest to X amount of peoples? And that can also hurt the filmmaker too, because if the film underperforms at a virtual festival and this other festival three months down the line goes, are we going to book this movie? Well, it didn't really do very many tickets at Fright Fest and that audience had the whole, all of the UK had access to that. Why would we program it if we know it's going to undersell here too? I, I could see that being an issue on both sides. Mm-hmm. Um, but everybody's just feeling their way through the dark right now. Yeah, it's, so it's, yeah, it's a learning it's process. Like, yeah, no, no one knows exactly how any of us you know, Roll the dice, see what happens. You never, like with Chattanooga, when I say I regret doing not doing that, it, I was worried about piracy going in because yeah. I, I believe any digital lock can be broken. I fully do. And I did not want the movie leaking to the world before I had a chance to monetize it. I mean, just being blunt and, and, and just setting it up with different distributors. I mean, without that, like, why did I do the work if I can't get it out there in, a, in, a, in an effective way? Um, and the other side of it was just audience burn. We were afraid to release it too early when we didn't have so much in place already. And now what we've got is this block of four or five festivals all within a one month period. So we're able to target our press and target our uh, our release strategy and target all of that. So it all kind of comes together at the same time as opposed to spreading it out because this year's anybody's guess. It's, it's who knows. So we just, we tried as hard as we could to just kind of 
targeted like you would almost any festival run. And, um, but my regret being is, is that, you know, obviously there wasn't, was no piracy out of Chattanooga and the films did very good press coverage and it was a fun experience had by a lot of people, but it was a big audience. It was like a lot of people saw those films in those markets and movies like the beach house and, uh, and jumbo and stuff like that. They already had distribution before they played. So they didn't have to worry about, you know, the possibility of somebody passing on the film because they already had it. I think the beach house hit shutter like two weeks after Chattanooga or something like that. So it was yeah, like, it, was pretty quick. I remember. it rolled in, it rolled up. Like that was a plan already set. We just weren't in that position. So, you know, it, it, bittersweet. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it could possibly help some movies that uh, might not have played some festivals. Cause they're like, well, these movies already played several ones mm-hmm. and worldwide or in the United States, whatever. Well, let's try this one. That's not played anywhere. Yeah, definitely. Um, I could. I, well, well, the other thing that happens too uh, is that the the bigger films and films that are just not going to do virtual festivals pull out. You know, they would have done the physical version, but they don't, they're not going to do the virtual version for whatever reason, especially with bigger distribution companies. So that leaves room for these smaller films to to sneak in um, that may not have got selected otherwise, and that you know that is a benefit to those smaller films because it gets eyes on them. Uh, but it can also be a detriment because depending on the territory, of the festival, depending on the number of tickets sold, there are definitely distributors who just, they're not going to touch your movie if you played a big enough virtual festival because you've already released it technically. Right. Yeah. No, you, you, uh, help, you, you, you're, you're involved in the, in Toronto, uh, Toronto after dark. dark yeah. So, uh, well, you know, what are your thoughts on all this? Like, uh, are you, well, is we, that uh, going virtual? No, we canceled this year. Uh, the Adam and I and Christian, we all sort of just talked about it early on, and we made the decision that based on the current data worldwide and based on the trajectory of the virus and the fact that morally you cannot guarantee the safety of your audience, uh, even if it was open back up, we just we opted to push it to next year. So we, uh, we're doing like some contesting and some virtual screenings of like existing films that aren't, you know, I, I think, you know, we, the Christian's been running them. So he did like a Friday the 13th anniversary screening, right. tweet along thing. And um, I think we did Lake Michigan Monster last week. Christian also set that one up. He's doing these sort of like special projects on the side. But as an actual festival itself, we, uh, we're off this year, basically. We've, we've, we've canceled and we're pushing to next year for the safety of our audience, for the safety of our staff. And just because there's, we cannot predict what's going to happen by October. We just can't. Mm-hmm. Um, we, we discussed virtual, but there's a lot of cost actually involved in a virtual festival. There's, you know, uh, digital print fees and setting up a plat, you know, setting up an account with these platforms can be pretty expensive per film. Um, <clears throat> there's, there's just, there's a lot of added cost and, uh, and logistics you have to pull off that we, uh, we just didn't think it would be worth it. Um, but now blood in the snow has stepped in and is doing, uh, just like Canadian film fest did in June is doing a, um, it, during our dates in October are doing a, a national uh, blood in the snow through super channel on broadcast TV, exact same deal they did with Canadian, that Canadian film festival, debated, but that's broadcast. And that's uh, it's literally one screening. Super channels viewership is around 400,000 people, but who knows how many of those will actually tune in uh, I, something like that. I don't think hurts the movie as bad. Um, so, of course, piracy is a possibility like it always was, but it, nothing leaked out of Canadian film fest. I mean, knock on wood, hopefully nothing leaks out of, of bits. The point being is that, um, yeah, we just, we had to make the call for all of us 
to be comfortable and we were not comfortable putting people in potential harm's way. Um, and we're, we're, we're internally trying to improve a number of things at the festival right now anyway. Uh, I'm not going to get into, but just like, you know, it's been going on for a long time and there's just, there are, there are certain aspects of it that we, we need to reevaluate and uh, we're, we'll see how, what happens next year. We'll see what the world looks like next year about piracy i'm always shocked that like people are so open about it online and right. don't see anything like don't even see it as a bad thing i've been kicked out of now. of like facebook groups because i'd be like you know be like uh we love horror movie i don't know whatever the name was and like they'd just be posting all these links to the you know to download them yeah. new movies and i was like this isn't a great way to support these movies and then they well, get mad at me and kick me out of the group it's a cultural thing now, though, too, right? They're, we're talking about gener a generation or two of people now who have been raised in the shadow of Napster and LimeWire, and uh, and and just it, to them, how you get music is you just download music. Um, how you get movies is you just download movies. Everybody does it uh, to some degree. Um, I don't mean everybody, but like right. it's widespread enough that it's not really a stigma anymore. And the only people really putting the stigma on it are the people who create the art who try and tell people what you're doing is hurting people, what you're doing is hurting people, but they're not really listening because there are two sides to the coin with piracy. I don't support it. I don't, I definitely don't support the idea of leaking a movie before it's had a chance to find its audience and get, uh, get proper return on it and, you know, get out there in a way that is um, going to allow that filmmaker to make another movie. I mean, just being completely blunt, if, if a movie leaks too early, you're, you're potentially shooting your career in the foot. Maybe where it gets a little gray area, just a little bit is a good example is uh, my movie that collapsed from like, I shot it in like 2010. It's uh, it's not a great film. Um, but something I noticed with the piracy on that, because it came out through anchor Bay and a bunch of territories and Lionsgate put it out in the UK and stuff like that. When it did leak, uh, I think we sold about 14 territories, uh, 15 territories with that one. So we, we were in a lot of countries around the world, but the pirates translated it and released it in another, in another 30 territories we never sold to. And in a way, as an artist, your work is spread wider because somehow these release groups and piracy groups took the time to take my little movie and translate it into 28 other languages, which is insane to yeah it's, it's weird that they would yeah. take the time where like, yeah exactly i mean i didn't take the money or time to do that i thought it was too big of a hassle and you know somebody bored at home you know whoever they are really leaking the stuff i did that which is weird but it also means when you go to these countries people have already heard of you to some degree because you know i never sold to south korea but i went to south korea and they'd heard of the, of the collapsed and it was never released there mm -hmm. but there was a copy available there with south Koreans with korean subtitles so it's like um, Lloyd Kaufman talks about this all the time. I was going to bring um, up Lloyd because yeah. like, he's a guy that's not, I wouldn't yeah. say pro piracy, but he has he's a pro piracy. View on it. I think he's pro de de democratization of the arts. Mm -hmm. So he's, he talks all the time about he never sells a thing to China, but everything gets bootlegged there. So trauma is huge in China. So it, it, it's, it's things like that, you know, and, and also because his movies have a political bent, I think like there's a certain dissenting. Uh, thread through his films that, that just speak to the to certain people in certain countries that don't have access to that stuff outside of piracy. So it is a little bit of a weird gray area there. Another thing I find interesting is with Life Changer, for example, when it came time to do the Blu-ray and I wanted Spanish and Portuguese subtitles on it, want to know where I found those subtitles to put on the Blu-ray? 
online, I guess. Yeah. yeah. I took them. I made, I sent them to a Spanish speaking and a Portuguese speaking friend. I was like, are these okay? And they're like, yeah, they're fine. And I just adapted them to the Blu-ray. <laughs> <laughs> so I used the piracy against then them. Then they got mad. They're like, Hey, you're pirating my piracy. <laughs> you pirated our, our translation. But you know what? Honestly, if they're going to steal the movie and translate it, I'm going to take advantage of that and open sure. up a couple market markets yeah. to myself. Like you, it, there's also data that shows with independent film that piracy actually can help to some degree because if it's a culture and if these people are going to steal it anyway, they were never going to buy it to begin with. So, or a big chunk of them were never going to buy it to right. begin with. That's actually probably they are seeing the film, then telling their friend to see the film. Then they, that friend tells their friend to see the film and somewhere in that chain of people, somebody's going to rent it or somebody's going to go to Netflix and watch it or somebody's going to, whatever it happens to be word of mouth is still a very strong generator of exposure and revenue. So it's, it is a double-edged sword. I find piracy. I think it's, it's morally wrong, but there is, there's just something about it that, that preserves and allows content and films to punch bigger above their weight and wider in the spectrum of, of viewership than just simple distribution does. And, uh, and there's, again, there's movies that are lost to time that have been resurrected and kept alive because uh, release boards and private message boards trade VHS rips and, uh, and like, you know, somebody took a reel to reel of an old porno and it exists now because it didn't burn up in a vault because somebody ripped it to digital, you know, like I'm not saying, you know, you can, you can believe whatever you, you want. Try to find something, you know, positive, you know what I mean? Yeah. But there, but there, there's film preservation in 2020 is, is it goes beyond just the people officially preserving it. It's the, it's a kid who has a file on a hard drive somewhere of some obscure, hard to find thing uh, it's the people that rip, old, ripped old tapes of N MTV when it first launches. So you've got a four-hour rip of MTV with all the commercials available for um, for archives. Actually, sake. absolutely. Like, yeah. Stuff like that. Like it's Piracy is interesting in that way in that it preserves the past in a digital way where it might have, that past might have just died otherwise. And I, I think that there is value to that. It's, it's such a weird gray area. I, but at the same time, it can totally fuck you. If it can, oh, as a filmmaker, yeah. it can completely fuck you. Yeah. So. Yeah. I just find it weird that it's so many people are just like, I, I wouldn't say to do it, but I would think if you are going to like uh, steal a movie, like I wouldn't just openly talk about it and be like, yep. and, and tell the filmmakers or actors. Cause I see that a lot. A lot of my film, like people contact like, Oh, well, how'd you see it? That's cool. You like it. Oh, you know, I got the tour. Oh, yeah, that that stuff like, is why insane. Why would you tell the person? Yeah, that stuff's not. At least it's a lot. Like comment and don't like, have a lot of shame in general. <laughs> no, that's true. <laughs> On the internet, especially. <laughs> that's very true. Yeah, yeah I've, I've definitely had people comment on uh, on like any of the fan pages of my movies. Like, I saw this on Pirate Bay, or I saw this on whatever, and it was <laughs> right. awesome. The th okay, here's one thing I hate about piracy. I hate it when a movie leaks, and the loudest voices about the people that's pirated are the ones who are like, I stole this and I want my money back. Yeah. Like people I, who, yeah. Who, if like, you stole it anyway yeah. and you hate it, stop fucking telling people that you're not helping anybody at that point. Like if you're going to steal it anyway, just shut up about it and fucking watch it. And that's it. Like don't right. tell the world. Yeah. And if you want to say you it. liked it, just don't yeah. say how you got it. If, you know, yeah, at the exactly. very least yeah. and that helps nobody. I mean, it, it's the least you can do is to just, you know, it, you know, not ruin the future chances of the movie with the eyes of other people, because ultimately everybody's got to make their own choices anyway about whether something is good or not. You know, one person's trash is another person's treasure. So don't steal it and also kneecap it. It's, it's such a shitty move. Yeah. 
Now, before I forget, because I do want to mention the Lloyd Kaufman in your movie, Clapboard yeah. Jungle. And he kind of goes, he's really the epitome of like the brand kind of thing, what you're talking about. Because the Lloyd Kaufman that he puts out there very much is a character. Yeah. And then, uh, and you know, he sells that character. And then in the, I always find him fascinating on a lot of different levels. I like that character. And when you get to see the uh, the actual Lloyd Kaufman, which you see a little bit in Clapboard Jungle, when he's, you know, his, his real self, I find interesting. I also find interesting how, like, uh, there's people that have horrible experiences with him and trauma, and there's people that really uh, embrace uh, him and trauma. And I bet both those experiences are true. I mean, to some extent. Like, but this happens with almost every small distribution company in the in the, in the film business, especially distribution companies and uh, production companies that make a lot of content. Because nothing, not everything works, uh, what you'll end up with is a varying degree of experiences the filmmakers and producers have with these particular companies. So a movie might be a hit for a company like Troma, and those filmmakers are excited as hell because like, uh, something like Mutant Blast is a good example of a movie that uh, Troma probably helped put on the mat to some degree. This Argentinian, uh, really fun Argentinian splatter comedy thing, post-apocalyptic splatter comedy thing, it probably would have done good with other distributors as well. Um, and I, I, I can't put the words in that director's mouth as to his experiences, but uh, something like that, which is like a flagship title for the company last year, would probably have a different experience than a film that was just taken on a straight distribution deal and didn't do any real sales because nobody really wanted to see the movie in the first place and Lloyd was doing them a favor kind of thing. Uh, a lot of young filmmakers, I think, expect the distributor to do all the work once the movie has been acquired and expect the distributor to just deliver a hit. And that's not really the way the business works. So you could, I'm not saying all of them. There's pro, there are probably really legitimately shitty, there definitely are really legitimately shitty people in the business. Um, I don't think Lloyd is one of them, but there probably are people who've had shitty experiences with Lloyd on a personal level or whatever, for whatever reason. Um, and I can't put words in anybody's mouth. Mm-hmm. And it probably had a lot to do with the context of their film and, uh, and decisions made by the distribution side that were, not in line with what the filmmakers thought should be done. And there's just, there's always this give and take and uh, always feelings are going to get hurt and people are going to get burned. And sometimes it's the fault of the distributor. And a lot of times it's just a miscommunication. And I just, I like, I've, I've sat and drank with Lloyd. Uh, You know, I've, I've had good conversations with him and he, and you know, I've read all of his books and um, he, he's a very smart man. And he's been at this a long, long, long time. And you're going to end up with some, um, some damage in the wake of that. Uh, the same as like, uh, not every project that I've made has been a success. And I'm sure there are people who worked on those projects who wanted them to do better. And were expecting bigger residual checks down the line because they, the, there's always a lot of hope that something's going to be a big hit. Um, and, you know, I've had projects where I was continually paying people every three months residual checks because it did really well. And but I, I had no control over that success. And then other projects that didn't do that well and where it's like, well, I paid you deferrals and I paid uh, your rate and I paid all that sort of thing. But there's been no back end. I'm still recouping the cost of this thing. So there's like it's all I think a lot of it is expectation. And, you know, I agree with that because yeah. from my experience talking to people, I always ask if they've worked with trauma because I find it interesting, you know, what mm-hmm. they think of it. And a lot of it to me is what they expected to get out of working yeah. with trauma. Yeah. I, and I think it, 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 and it's the same for a lot of companies. Like um, there are definitely big companies out there that if you get picked up 
at least on a release and exposure side of things, you're going to do really well and it will probably steamroll into your next project because that kind of company puts you on the map. But then when you look into all of the reporting and the way it works and let's say they put your, your title into Walmart in 3000 locations across the United States and you don't, you don't have a clue what a return hold is and you would see a $140,000 expense line on your, your return for a year and a year and a half. And you're like, why am I not making any money? And what's this $140,000? Then the return hold lifts and all of a sudden you're given a check for $120,000 and you're like, wait, what? it's because you didn't really understand the, the inner workings of the actual distribution system and like how these things actually work. You didn't understand that a company like Walmart takes X amount of titles. You have four weeks to sell more than 50% of that stock. And if that doesn't happen, that stock goes into a warehouse and sits there for months and months and months and months and months. And, months. and there's a hold put on that, that basically um, is, is on all accounting all the way down until the, the actual product itself is liquidated which means either sold off for cheap or sent right back to the distributor. So it's like there's a lot of little inner working parts to the distribution cycle that a lot of people don't understand getting into distribution and a lot of expenses there. And it's just some people are more honest than others. It's hard to figure out who is who. And uh, ultimately at the end of the day, I find I think a lot of, of filmmakers that get disappointed and angry and call people out and get pissed off a lot of them, not all of them, but a lot of them just didn't really understand what they were getting into at the beginning, I think is, is part of it. Um, there's definitely real, absolutely there's real uh, issues people have, and I'm not diminishing those, but yeah. uh, but there's, again, pers- it's perspective and, and perception and understanding is, is, I think, what happens with a lot of people. Mm-hmm. Uh, Tristan, did you have a question? Sorry. No, I don't have a question. I'm just, uh, this interview is reminding me of your film and that it's very honest, very practical, um, very educational. And I think you're doing a real service to people in that way because most of my friends are filmmakers and a a big struggle is this distribution and it's very confusing. And the same way that uh, you were very honest in your highs and lows and personal story, which even is continuing on as we speak. You're like, oh, I fucked up with that festival. Like, that's a very honest thing to say. And I think a lot of filmmakers are too afraid to talk about when they get burned uh, distribution-wise. And then other filmmakers continue to make the same mistakes. So I think it's really important to have that dialogue. I think you're really helping people. It's very inspirational. I think you have to be learning at all times. And I think you have to, you need to look below the surface of why something happened and figure out what all the pieces that had to come together to make something happen for good or for bad. Like you you have to figure out the entomology of the beast. That is the thing you created and, and figure out like try and figure out why something worked or why something didn't work. I think that's really important. You, You have to be, you have to put some distance and get a little honesty and look at your work and go, okay, why did this work? And why didn't this one work? Why did the market want this sort of thing right now? And why was this not a success? I like, I think the more honest you are about the work you're creating, the better chance you have of figuring out a way to make successful work. It may not work. I've said the word work like 14 times in the last, (laughs) it may not, it may not pay off for you, but at least you went forward with education and an informed uh, thought process. I think that's really important. 
like I think the more your learning doesn't end in film school. In fact, a lot of people don't even go to film school anymore. But the you know I went to a couple of them. I dropped out of one and I uh, I finished another one, and then I taught at that one like two years later uh, for a bit. But the point being is that like film school is only going to ever open a door for you. But once you walk through that door, uh, you know, in on whatever path you're on, if you ever for a moment think I know everything and I don't need to learn anything else, you're kind of full of shit and you really need to take a hard look at your career and work even harder because um, there's always room for improvement. And I'll be the first to say. I also think things always change too. So you you have to, you know, keep up with it. Nonstop. Well, that's the other thing about the documentary, right? I started shooting in 2014. I think I put together something that at least on an emotional level is timeless. Um, But the actual information inside it may not be applicable in three years. It may like, it it, it will be on on a macro level, but all the little micro like inner working parts, that stuff changes all the time. It's not as fast as like computer tech moves but it's it definitely changes it's definitely it definitely moves things change um and socioeconomic pressures in various countries change entire industries too so it's you know we're heading into a really unsure time in the next 20 to 30 years i mean we're in the middle of the beginning of what our future is going to look like right now because climate change is real i'm sorry for the people that don't believe that but it is uh and things are going to get harder for society in general Entertainment's going to be needed during all of that, and that's great. But the way it gets created, what's popular, what people are willing to do, how many people are willing to go to movie theaters, uh, where, uh, what countries are profitable—all of that stuff is up to the whims of the planet we're on. Uh, you know, if 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 sea levels rise and we lose a bunch of major cities, I mean, New York's not going to be a major market if it's underwater. So it's, it's, it's kind of hard. I'm, I'm being blunt and I'm probably being a little pessimistic. Uh, but we have, as much as you need to know about the business you're in, you also need to place yourself contextually in the world you're in and understand there's bigger things than you. There always are going to be. And you, you need to be able to navigate those waters um, to stay afloat. We're true. So uh, you said that the uh, you're going to do a series too for Clapboard. We're already in post production. Yeah. Okay, it's an eight episode series. It's uh, it's educational. We have a pilot pretty much done, and we've got assembly edits of four more episodes. And every episode is a topic. So mm-hmm. the pilot is uh, history and how we got where we are, and then uh, pre production is the second episode and et cetera, et cetera. It's sort of like just interesting. Yeah, it's like where, will, where will that be? Do you know yet, or can you say? Uh, I mean, we. <laughs> Like anybody, we could easily put it on Amazon Prime or something, but we're shopping for uh, specific broadcasters sure. or platforms to take it right now. So it, I don't know for sure who yet. Um, I've got Andrew Vanden Houten in the U.S. who's uh, handling U.S. <coughs> U.S. sales who will be helping us out. Uh, Avi Fettergreen in Canada is doing Canada. And then internationally, we, we have pockets of various uh, distributors we met over the years who are uh, just helping us out. So we'll see. We'll see where it ends up, but um, I think it's strong enough. It's going to be about 30 to 40 per episode, and uh, well, it'll find a home, and it'll probably be out early next year. Cool. And I've, so a lot of filmmaker friends of mine told me that that's really the way to go right now is series because there's so many platforms that need content, and they fill up more time than a, uh, yeah. than a feature or short or whatever. 
you know, independently produced series though, which we're doing is, uh, is more challenging because sure, uh, they, these platforms want to be involved from day one because they want to be able to guide and manipulate and manipulate is the wrong word. I guess it depends on the series. Um, you know, they want to be able to handhold and guide these series through production so that they reflect the needs of the platform. And especially with a big platform like Netflix or something, reflect the needs of the algorithm and the uh, audiences they have, because there's no, there's no reason to invest in something at Netflix on the Netflix level, unless it has the potential to explode as a trending kind of deal. Yeah. So, and, and they, they do a shotgun approach, right? They green light so much stuff in the hopes that, you know, something's going to catch on and be the next stranger things or whatever. Um, but we're yeah. doing a, we're doing a self-produced series, which is a whole other ballgame because, like, I doubt Netflix will pick it up just because it's not something they've had any control over. Or if they do, they'll go, we really like this. We like all the pieces. Here's how we want you to change it. And then we got to redo the whole thing. Like, it really depends on what we decide, like, what happens. Um, and there's even things like shooting standards, right? Like, I shot this movie mostly in HD. Uh, Netflix would want it all to be 4K if it was an original. Like, it's... It is what it is. Yeah. I have a friend who's talking to Netflix. He has a series that he's creating. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's it got some name people involved, and I won't mention it. But uh, he was he told me off air, because we talked about it on the show, but some stuff he told me off air. And uh, um, he was talking to Netflix, and they offered no money at all. But they told him that, like, if it does well the first season, then the second season, then they would, you know. I mean, they, he's a creator, and they offered him no money? No money at all for the first season. But if it, but if like it does well, then then like the second season and on, like they just basically offered that it would, you know, the idea actually talking to Netflix or was he talking to a producer with a Netflix output? He said it was Netflix. I mean, I don't know why you. That's uh to offer zero money as a as the creator on a series is kind of insane to me. I I don't. I've never heard of that. Um, I don't think he would make it up, but you know, it was was very. I'm not saying he did. Yeah, it was just the idea was that if it does well and. The, then after that, uh, but the idea was like the prestige, I guess, of being on Netflix. Yeah, but that's still just like you know, you're not going to pay your bills, with fun, right, especially exactly. on a series. You're not paying your bills on exposure. Um, mm-hmm. Like Life Changer, the movie I did before this, uh, sold to Netflix. It was on there for a year, and for like a three day period, we were like, or it was almost three days. It was like two and a half days. We were number one trending. Didn't really mean much. Like to to me personally, as the director of the film, not a lot. I mean, it's not like we got a bump or anything like that. It would just we did really well for a short period of time, and I can say that in meetings. But it doesn't mean that you know that the Netflix suddenly picks up the phone and like, oh shit, this movie we bought. What else do you have? I got nothing. I got no calls. It was just you know we're on Netflix. We're number one trending, and we're done. That was that was pretty much it. Yeah, <laughs> it was cool. I mean, like You're sure, of course, I'm sure. Very few people can say that at this point, but it doesn't doesn't mean much i mean yeah. it's bragging rights and it's uh it's ammo for your next meeting but uh, yeah <laughs> netflix didn't make my movie so it, it doesn't spin into another movie <laughs> so uh where can people follow you in clapboard jungle you know if they want to find out uh where it's playing or more information i mean i'm on all i'm personally on all the social medias uh you can find me on you know instagram twitter <laughs> facebook linkedin but i never check it uh, and uh, Clapboard I Jungle. I get notifications uh, from Clinkin. And I, well, I get those I've, ever all the time. I've ever created an account, but apparently I must. I have an account. It's it's got yeah. tons of contacts on it, but I never. If anybody messages me on LinkedIn, I have to apologize. Usually five months later, because it's like, oh, you messaged me on LinkedIn. I'm sorry. <laughs> um, anyway, for Clapboard Jungle, there's a website, clapboardjungle.com. 
they're, they're also, it's also on all the social medias. Uh, although I don't think we have an Instagram account right now, which is probably a no, no for uh, modern social media marketing, but, uh, but that's out there as well. Um, uh, obviously you could, a Google search will find me and my stuff pretty easily. So yeah. yeah. I'm not the one who's a football player. I'm not that Justin McCall. Oh, okay. I'm not the <laughs> what? Um, the interview's over. <laughs> yeah, I'm not the uh, fine arts um, boudoir photographer, and uh, I'm not the guy who killed someone. I'm the, the other Justin. <laughs> as far as we know. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> it's probably not the place to uh, to admit to it if you. Will. Yeah, no. I just I think it's funny. There's a there's a YouTube account with my name on it. <laughs> That's just uh, like all it's a murderer. Um, yeah. yeah, no, but it's it's not no. That's not the murderer's account. Oh, okay. um, that's all uh, burlesque video. Oh, really? And, yeah. and I'm wondering, like, I, I got nothing against burlesque, uh, right, right. but I, but I wonder if I'm ever in a meeting and somebody looks me up. Because they're like, <laughs> so he's a dude who like shoots low grade burlesque videos. Like, <laughs> but the, you know that guy's you know, that guy's got an eye. He's you know he's a good shooter and stuff. Uh-huh. It's just it's just not me. So it's like I've, I'm always yeah. wondering, like, people doing their research are, are like. <laughs> So wait, you you said what online? I'm like, wait, what? No. <laughs> Change my name to something less common or something. I don't know. Right, right. Yeah, about the social media real quick too yeah. is like I have all those and I probably wouldn't use most of them if it wasn't for the show, but I always think like do people need like the everything I do in triplicate? It's like here's the show on Facebook, here's the show on Twitter, here's the show on Instagram. It's like, I think they're different audiences. Thing, but yeah, I, <laughs> I know lots so. of people who aren't on Facebook, but That's are on true. Instagram and Twitter. Right. Um, although at the same time, I know people who are on all three and then you'll do a cross post where it's like you post to Instagram and then it's a setting where it can also post to right. Twitter or whatever. I, I'm date. My girlfriend is a social media manager and she calls me out every time. She's like, why did you cross post the same thing to three different networks? They all got to be unique. That's one one And it's like, I'm too fucking lazy for that. I just, just like, you know, <laughs> but, uh, yeah, I don't know. I, I don't think there's any particular rules to social media. You just sort of have to play it the way you play it. Right. Um, yeah. I know. I there's definitely tips and things, it, but yeah. I just, I'm too old. I'm too old to, I'm only 38, but I feel like I'm too old to really get to know social media and maybe that holds me back, but right. Yeah. yeah. I'm you know, 44. So yeah, it's a weird yeah. thing. To, I remember when, well, I first started doing the show and my friend's like, oh, you got to get on MySpace. I was like, what the hell is that? And he's like, oh, well, I'll make a, you an account. Yeah, I, like, okay, I had a beefy MySpace profile. I shut it down because Luca Magnata made me one of his top 10 friends. The guy from Don't Fuck With Cats, the documentary. <laughs> okay, yeah. So for some reason, I was one of his top friends on MySpace. Yeah, the top eight. Uh, back, yeah. yeah, back top eight, whatever it was. <laughs> yeah. Back when back when he got caught. So every national paper in Canada called <laughs> me and were like, so tell me about Luca. And I went, the singer from no assembly required because i was i had a client named luca at the same time too different completely different guy so i killed my myspace because i was being associated with a, a very, <laughs> a very laugh, famous killer yeah. in canada um that's that's but i had like you know i don't know 10 or fifteen thousand people connected to it or something like that and, and it was just like well it died and then a year later myspace itself died pretty much yeah, so it was, yeah it's still awesome. there but i don't even know how to yeah, log in it's there but it doesn't work like I've got all these old music projects. I the the you can't actually listen to music anymore. It's not it's not live. Yeah, because I would put interviews on there, and like you had to learn HTML coding to really even yeah. do anything. Yeah, on the I site. remember all that. That yeah. was uh, those were the days. Yeah. In a way, though, I feel like MySpace was a more pure platform than Facebook. Facebook like, turned into this thing that destabilizes governments, and MySpace was just like, check out my band. Right. <laughs> it was yeah. a totally different I set up a lot of interviews through it. Uh, yeah. you know, so, so the, I mean, lots of lots of networking. I, one of my exes uh, I, I met through just like MySpace messages and stuff. Like, 
but regardless of that, it's uh, it was it was a weird time. <laughs> That's for sure. It was, yeah. And yeah. That, it has nothing to do with anything. But I remember my friend who said who made my MySpace. He told me he's like, but change your password because if I get mad at you, I know how I am, and I'll go in there and, and like I'm like whatever <laughs> and he did though he got mad at me for i don't think any reason and he went and like destroyed my myspace and i was like what, what the? well he warned me so i guess yeah, i can't get mad but it was at least very, he was self-aware enough to realize yeah, he would fucking hack you, if you... <laughs> right and, and, and so now he's none of my passwords but i'll constantly get new, a friend request from him on facebook and i'm like oh he must have unfriended me about something and now he's he likes me again but it's very bizarre but I just overlook it now because I know I know what he's about. But there's nothing to do with anything. But he's no, I mean, it, was a, it was a tangent, right? So yeah, Clapboard Jungle at Fantasia Fest and uh, yeah. check it out. I'm looking forward to uh, more stuff. Or a Fright Fest if you're in the UK, it's playing there too. Uh, Night Visions if you're in Finland. I don't know. I'm sure that more than just Americans or Canadians listen to this podcast. Right. Yeah, yeah, which is which was is very strange to me, especially yep. you know, Americans. Uh, if you're in Buffalo, it's playing Buffalo Screams for one night in an actual oh, event nice. space. Which have fun. Yeah, <laughs> I, yeah, I know who runs that. I thought it was uh, unusual that they're actually. Well, going I mean, it, but... it's as long as they're taking the safety protocols, that's great. I, I mean, I'm not going to really get into it. Yeah, um, yeah. I, I personally am not going to go to a movie theater right now. As mm-hmm. much as I'd like to go see the new Train to Busan movie or whatever, I'm, yeah, I would too. I'm not gonna like we have our theaters open in Canada again, um, in, in in most places, and uh, I see all these friends going to go see Peninsula this weekend, and it's like, man, in another life I would be there with you, but I'm just not taking the risk at the moment. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Yeah, I, <laughs> there, there's a few open around here, not too many, but yeah, uh, our drive-in's a bit different, but still, like. Yeah, driving. Yeah. That's a cool. Uh, I know yeah. there's a f- uh, festival here that's doing a drive-in. Nice. That, was, that sounded actually pretty fun to go to the drive-in and watch. You know, yeah, some crazy totally. Movies. Yeah, totally. I mean, I've, I'm at, I don't think I've been to a drive-in in years. And this point. no, I, I used to go all the time as a kid, but I haven't been in probably thir- over thirty years. Oh, that's a long. Yep. Yeah, old man. Well, now's the time when everyone else is. Exactly. Cool. Right, very good. This has been great. All right. Excellent. Thanks a lot, guys. Yeah. Everybody. Thank you again. No problem. Yeah. Bye. Yeah, we'll talk to you again when the series comes out. If you if if you want to, Let's yeah, sure. Well, we we can absolutely have a chat. We'll try and go on less tangents. <laughs> I say more. Yeah, more. Okay. Talk right. to you later. Thank you. Yep. Bye. From ancient terrors to the search for modern day conspiracies, the tomb of Nick Cage is the new sound in horror rock. Uncover the mystery of old world horror for the new world order on iTunes, Amazon, and more. <laughs> The Tomb of Nick Cage. They're coming at night! Hopefully they're coming at night! Hopefully they're coming at night! Hopefully they're coming at night! Hopefully! Find out on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. The Tomb of Nick Cage. <laughs>